This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. What was the meaning of the American Civil War? After four years of war and more than 600,000 people dead, how does a nation heal and come to terms with what can only be described as a tragedy? These are questions that these are questions that the American Civil War raised, and we'll explore them today on the Waters and Harvey Show with noted Yale historian Dr. David Blight. We'll be back in a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters, and as always, we are happy to have you all join us in the audience. Happy to have you listening to the Waters and Harvey Show, and very pleased, as always, to be here, not flying solo again, but with my brother, <laughs> Dr. Marcus Harvey. Marcus, how is it going? Nice to be here. It's been a long week, but it's good to be here. It is. It's been busy, and here we are again, back in the studio. And I, I do want to say, before we jump back into talking about the American Civil War, that uh, for those of you who are listening in the audience, just to thank you again for the the feedback that Marcus and I are getting. We're always hearing from you all. We see you on the streets sometime, and you are letting us know just how much you value the show, and that kind of keeps Marcus and I encouraged about what it is that we're doing. Mm -hmm. So we really want to say we appreciate that. And the more feedback we get, the more this feels like um, a growing conversation. It does. It does. (laughs) A conversation with the community, a conversation with Mm -hmm. the region. So it's really good. But here we are again, Marcus, talking about the American Civil War. We've talked about this before, you know, so we're back at it again. And I can't help but think again. Um, I'm always referencing that 1979 essay uh, by uh, Dr. Franklin, John Hope Franklin. You all hear us talk about Dr. Franklin quite often, you know, as one of my, of one of my mentors in the historical profession. And he wrote this essay back in 1979 titled Mirror for America, a Century of Reconstruction History. And one of the points that Dr. Franklin made in that essay in a very opening part Part of the essay was that the process of reconciling a society torn apart by civil conflict is often as contentious as the conflict itself. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, no truer words were spoken. And, and here we are again having major conversations about what the meaning of the Civil War was. We're in the sesquicentennial of American Reconstruction. We're back at it again, Marcus. Yeah, and I, I think I think one of the one of the major reasons that uh, this question is so recurrent. Uh, is that there seems to be um, somewhat of an allergy in the broader American population uh, toward dealing squarely with this history and with its implications uh, for the broader broader public or collective memory. Right. Mm-hmm. And one thing we've talked about is that th- this is a political process. Memory, public memory, collective memory is a political process. Mm-hmm. We make decisions about what is included in that memory and what is not included in that memory. Mm-hmm. But when you think about the American Civil War, I mean, more than 600,000 people did. I mean, how do people come to terms with that? I mean, mm-hmm. both North and South, how do people heal? How do you reconcile a nation after you've been through a major war like this? This is uh, something that I struggle with a lot of trying to understand the many people who were affected by this war. Yeah, I can't help but to, but to be reminded of a lecture given by a colleague of mine at UNC Asheville, Dr. Jeremias Zunguzi, who was talking about 
uh, issues of popular memory in Mozambique, which, as you know, gained independence from Portugal only in 1975. Mm-hmm. And one mm-hmm. of the one of the foremost issues faced by Mozambicans since then has been the issue of popular memory. Right. right? What is the role of ancestral knowledge, ancestral memory, and reconstructing Mozambican identity? Right. So, so yeah, as Marcus, many of uh, our listeners will know that one of my favorite historians is <laughs> Dr. David Blight. Mm-hmm. I talk about Dr. Blight a lot in his work, and and especially his book Race and Reunion. We've referenced it yeah. often. We We've referenced uh, American Oracle, which he wrote as well. And these are major questions that he deals with in his work. Mm-hmm. How does a nation heal after this? Can it heal? Mm-hmm. I think as we think about the ruptures that we're having in our society right now, uh, have we really healed from this process? Um, so we come back to this again. I mean, this is very relevant with where we are now. So what Marcus and I would like to do is just step out for a quick minute, come back and start that conversation with Dr. David Blight. Again, you're listening to the Waters and Harvey Show, coming from you at BPR, uh, Blue Ridge Public Radio here in Asheville, North Carolina. Marcus and I are glad to be back with you again, glad to be here in the studio again. And as we've already noted, we're talking about the American Civil War, American Civil War memory, and we are pleased, and I'm telling you, very honored to have here in the studio with us Dr. David Blight, who is professor of history at Yale University. I mean, one of the nation's, uh, I would say, most prominent voices. Uh, as far as the nation's memory and and history is concerned. And so we're so pleased to have you here in the studio with us, Dr. Blake. Thank, uh, thank you, Darren, and thank you, Marcus. <laughs> well, there's so many places, uh, Dr. Blight, that we could begin this conversation with you, um, and I'm sure that many people out there will recognize your voice uh, as as they hear it, um, especially my students. I talk about all the time. My students have <laughs> have listened to um, I owe you an agent's fee. Right? I owe you an agent. <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing I would like to start here, I mean, it's uh, with uh, the historical profession itself. Just your, um, what is it that drew you into history, studying history? Well, it isn't all that dramatic. It was time and place. I came of age in the mid and late 60s and early 70s. I had two terrific high school history teachers, to be frank. One who taught me Western Civ, as it was called then, and the other who taught me American history. They had something to do with it. In my case, it did not come from family. It came from teachers. And it came from the environments I came of age in. And it came from the things I started reading. Uh, I, from, from the earliest time I can remember thinking what I really want to do in the world, if I couldn't make the big leagues as a right-hander, which became pretty clear <laughs> by about the age of 19, I wanted to teach history. And uh, it's really that simple. Uh, so if they would pay me to actually teach history somewhere, I thought I was the luckiest guy in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so here, I kind of feel the same way, too. You know, it's kind of a passion. So, you know, so you're talking about, you know, uh, this growing interest in history when you were a kid. So that can lead us to another question that I did want to ask. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and how did region impact uh, your interest in history? Well, I grew up in Flint, Michigan, which Unfortunately, most people know now is the city with the great water crisis. Mm -hmm. But I grew up there, uh, luckily, in the 1950s and 60s when it was uh, an industrial boom town. Mm -hmm. My dad came out of World War II as a working-class guy from a farm who could go to work in the factory. 
and uh, make a decent living. And it had a very good public school system. Um, it really did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I happened to grow up in a state like Michigan that had very good public universities. So my brother and I both went to. Uh, he went to Michigan. I went to Michigan State, and I forgave him. Okay. <laughs> but but it's uh, it's you know I grew up in a place that really valued education in ways I didn't entirely understand at first. Mm. Um, but I, you know I'm I am a Midwesterner, and uh, whatever that actually means, you know, in terms of values and accents right. and all of that. Um, but with a fascination for the past, which I still, frankly, can't entirely explain. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a kid, I would uh, rather wander off and read some book about the Civil War, <laughs> uh, <laughs> except for playing baseball. It was the only other thing I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it didn't come from an uncle. It didn't come from a parent. It came from – I do think it, my interest, though, had a great deal to do with coming of age with the incredible events we all know. Uh, happening from the early to the late 1960s, the civil rights mm-hmm. movement, the Vietnam mm-hmm. War, this idea that the world and the society I was in was somehow coming apart. And I can still remember, I can't remember precisely the year, but the first time I read C. Van Woodward's The Strange Career of mm-hmm. Jim Crow, where he actually used that term, second reconstruction. Right. I'm not sure he invented it, but he used it. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Whoa. If this is the second, what was the first? That sort of thing. Uh, and that, that became uh, a, a, a reason to pursue this. And then when I got out of college, I became a high school history teacher. So I spent seven years teaching in a large public high school before I ever went back to graduate school. And that's where you find out whether you really want to be a teacher. Or not. <laughs> oh, that's true. Uh, <laughs> Very well said. Well, I never had that experience of teaching in, in high school. I mean, I've only gone into uh, high schools and middle schools to right. talk to students, and sure. it's tough. Oh, yeah. It's tough. You yeah. get to go in and out in one day. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> right. I had to go back. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have a special respect for, for folks who can teach high school. I do, too. <laughs> so Dr. Blight. In, in a lecture, you once you once said that, if, or you once suggested that, if all of out of all of the American wars, that yeah. there's something about the Civil War that continues to attract our attention. And so, I want to sort of pose that question to you here: What is it about this war of all the American wars that continues to um, uh, be so attractive, to be mm-hmm. so uh, contentious within the American? Um, Oh, that's a great question, Marcus. There are many mm-hmm. answers, but it, I think f- for so many people it begins with family, uh, black and white, because so many Americans can trace their ancestors, if they choose to, to that era. Uh, in fact, there's been a study done that shows that almost one-third of all Americans had ancestors in the Civil War, and of course mm-hmm. that includes African Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, so it begins with family, but it is, it is the fundamental pivot of American history. It's the, it's the great reckoning. Eighty-some years into the existence of an American republic, it tears itself to pieces over the second largest slave system in the world, if you count Russian serfdom. Mm-hmm. And it uh, fights this all-out war uh, that's existential. You know, would an American republic survive? Would it become two countries or more? Um, and then it frees four million people from slavery that forces, uh, for those who honor it and like it and those who don't, 
uh, a complete recrafting of the Constitution. The, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments gave us a second Constitution, and that can all be explained. But So if you just understand the basics about the Civil War era, which, of course, includes Reconstruction, which in the South is such a difficult memory, uh, it's, it's the first great pivot of our history. Um, of course, in the 20th century, we had a couple of pivots, too, like the Great Depression and Second World War and the Civil Rights Movement. Um, but, you know, it has everything to do with how that original American nation destroyed itself and then had to reinvent itself. And let's face it, that's a heck of a story. Mm-hmm. Now, it tends to draw a lot of people who are interested in military history, and that's okay. I mean, that's fine. Um, the people are drawn to the, the sort of contest uh, of military affairs, but uh, it doesn't take too long. And I think we've discovered in recent years that all those great Civil War buffs out there are, are, are willing to read about politics mm-hmm. and race and emancipation mm-hmm. as well. They're not just obsessed with military history. Some mm-hmm. of them are, but not all of them. Um, so, I mean, it's the Civil War d- draws us. It's what Robert Penn Warren once said. He said it draws us as our oracle, mm-hmm. darkly unriddled and portentous uh, as national and personal fate. Mm-hmm. And I think Warren was basically right. This is an event we do go back to to try to understand, so who are we? What is an American? Mm-hmm. The Civil mm-hmm. War redefined that. It redefines, it, it gave the country a definition of citizenship right, for the first right. time. Um, it forces us back to asking, so what, what is this experiment uh, called the United States or America? How did it survive, and how and why is it surviving now, or will it survive mm-hmm. uh, its next reckonings? And it's been very interesting in this current time we're living, whatever we're going to end up calling this uh, time, um, how much we are all being asked now, uh, not just since the election of Trump, but uh, since the wave of police shootings and then the Charleston massacre, and especially in 2015, and now Charlottesville, and in the middle of this, whatever we're going to call this monument mania mm-hmm. situation mm-hmm. we're in, uh, historians are being asked every day to understand, you know, how do we use the past to understand where we are now? Right. You know, what are we living or reliving? What are the parallels? Mm-hmm. And as a historian, and I've been doing this a long time, mm-hmm. I've never been asked so many times in a concentrated period that kind of question, not just by the media, but by my own students who want to know, is, is America coming apart? Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, sometimes I tell them, yeah, mm-hmm. but it, it has before. Right. You know, that's why you're taking history courses. <laughs> right. <laughs> David, can I ask you a question in, in thinking about this and think about the Civil War? Because, you know, and, and again, I want to mention your book here, uh, Race and Reunion. You've you've written a number of books, and and uh, I have my students read. You know, when I teach. Uh, the American Civil War and Reconstruction. It's interesting for me. I have to tell the story. I never wanted to teach this. Mm. And this was dropped in my lap. I tried to do everything to avoid the Civil War. I'm not interested in military history. Mm-hmm. Um, and But then I was given, you know, the task of teaching it. And it's become probably one of the more reward, the most rewarding courses that I've taught. Were you mm-hmm. taught it? Originally a sort of a Southern story? Yes. And therefore not? Mm, yes. Okay. That had a lot to do with Civil it. Civil War means the South? That's Con- it. Things Confederate? Mm-hmm. And why would I want to 
dwell on no. it. Why do I want to no, dwell on I this? And, you know, <laughs> and go to something else. And so um, now, I, you know, I enjoy teaching it, but I wanted to find a way to teach it without focusing on battles. And right. your work allowed me to do that by mm-hmm. looking at the issue of memory mm-hmm. because, you know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but one of the things that I tell my students is that when they read your book, um, Race and Reunion, uh, The Civil War and American Memory, that what you're doing is not so much concerned with what goes on in a war, although you tell that story, mm-hmm. but you're emphasizing mm-hmm. how we have remembered mm-hmm. um, the Civil War. And correct me if I'm wrong mm-hmm. there, but can you tell tell us a little bit here and for our audience exactly what you're doing mm-hmm. uh, with this particular book? Well, I'm, I'm delighted that you teach it. <laughs> I'm delighted to get that question. I would frame it even bigger. If we think about Look, let's take something like World War II, the most colossal war the world's ever seen. What we talk about in terms of that war is what it was about. What There was a possibility of these fascist, racist regimes literally taking over the world. Yes, the military history is absolutely crucial to understand how Hitler's Germany was defeated, how Japan was defeated, et cetera, et cetera. We need to understand how Pearl Harbor happened, et cetera. But it's about the consequences and the causes. It's always been my approach to the Civil War. This is what matters. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of memory, I came to this, to be perfectly frank, through my first book, was, which was my dissertation on Frederick Douglass. When I got the dissertation finished, I, I, I followed through the sources through the last parts of Douglass's life, and I found him all over the place talking about memory, mm-hmm. a kind of abolitionist, emancipationist memory. And so I decided to write a chapter called Frederick Douglass and the Memory of the Civil War, not having a clue that there was a sort of budding subfield at that time of memory studies, which came out of French history and other places. Um, And that got me interested in at least trying to see if there was a whole book to be done on the memory of the Civil War. And at first I didn't know what I was doing. But from the the time I started writing Race and Re, or researching it, I wanted it to be the story of both South and North and both black and white in the same narrative. Because if we just tell the Southern side, or we just tell the Union side, or if we just did a black memory, or what would a white memory of the Civil War actually consist of? There's mm-hmm. a lot of white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found myself uh, digging into this question. So what happened? Not just to black people, but what happened to the central consequence of that war, which was four million emancipated slaves, forcing the country to reinvent itself. The trouble was, of course, and the evidence shows this you know, a thousand times over, that Americans reconciled that most divisive event, that bloodletting, like no other. Um, on the backs of African Americans, uh, at the cost of not only the rights, but the cost of justice being done to those four million people and their sons and daughters Mm -hmm. and grandsons and daughters who had been emancipated. You brought up this idea of healing earlier. And in that research and in that book, I found what was really the contest, and it's why it's so difficult and it's still with us, The country had to find a way to achieve healing and justice. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this all over the world. Look at any place that's had a major civil war. 
they have a struggle afterward with healing and justice. Right. And sometimes they do not heal. There are places in the world who have not healed from their civil wars and have not achieved justice. Well, we can say we, as Americans, we healed by and large. Well, some of us healed. But the justice challenge is still there. Mm -hmm. Look what we're experiencing again. Every time we think the Civil War has been put away somewhere, settled somewhere, <laughs> it just blows up again at us uh, in ways we don't expect. Uh, it is like I've been using the metaphor lately of the dragon that's laying around out there in America. But if you poke it, it's going to breathe fire on you and burn you again. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is where I think an event like Charleston is so important because it became the event, uh, always with violence, uh, that forced people to reposition themselves once again on this question of the legacies of that event and how we keep processing it. And also, you know, memory is such a fascinating problem because it's part of our basic humanity. Mm -hmm. We can't function as humans without memory, individually or collectively. Everybody does it. All cultures, all societies organize the past and, and fight like the dickens over that past and that story. And lo and behold, that's what we do. If an event or an experience is important enough, It'll be a problem in memory. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Dr. Blatt, I mean, a, a sort of a, a question building off of that for me, which, you know, for me is, is, is really a major quandary. So, you know, <clears throat> the American Republic has sort of always imagined itself uh, at least officially as a just society mm -hmm. uh so how do you reconcile that a more perfect union yeah yeah so so how do you reconcile that national imagining mm -hmm. uh with this perennial issue mm -hmm. as you put it of the justice challenge i mean right. well, how how to how, what i mean how how to account for these two things right. mm. all nations or cultures need their deep myths and by that i mean you know mm -hmm. the anthropological sense of the deep story um that America is essentially a progress story. You know, that as, as somebody once said, it was born perfect and then launched a career of getting better. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, we, we did like to say, you know, we have these creeds. I mean, that, most countries aren't founded in creeds. Um, uh, we have those creeds in the Declaration of Independence, and they're amazing. You know, they're basically the sort of the precious ore of the Enlightenment that Jefferson borrowed and dug out and put them into words. Um, but it's the myth that we love to live by. It's the myth, and I'm using that word carefully here, not as something that's false or true, but it's the story that, that has always made the American, it, it's been the engine of this American experiment, but it's always been contradicted. I mean, there's a line in Frederick Douglass. Douglass had something to say about everything, but he did once say, America is its contradictions. It is inherently mm -hmm. contradic contradictory. In fact, you could say any nation that founds itself on these kinds of basic creeds, natural rights, equality, popular sovereignty, and the right of revolution, those are Jefferson's first principles. You found yourself on that, you're bound to violate it. And you're already violating it because you're a slave society. Mm -hmm. And the very people who are creating that republic are themselves slaveholders, many of them, mm -hmm. most of them. Um, so... It, this is what, to me, and it's what interests the world about us. When you go abroad and you try to teach abroad or you 
speak to people abroad, it's, it is America's contradictions that often fascinate people. I mean, our popular culture fascinates them, too. Um, but the justice story, whether we see it in the Constitution or we claim it in the Declaration of Independence or we see it in the changes in law, uh, is, is the myth that sometimes makes us miss the reality. And we, I mean, we need to, again, we need to keep harping on this over and over and over. The Civil War comes, you know, in the ninth decade of the existence of that republic. But <laughs> the United States was absolutely founded in slavery. It was founded in part by slavery. It was a, it was, a, you know, two-thirds of the first presidents before, uh, before Lincoln were slaveholders. Two-thirds of the members of the Supreme Court before the Civil War were slaveholders. Uh, you know, it, it, the reason slavery couldn't be abolished before the Civil War, by and large, is because it was protected in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we have to first admit that part of the story. And then understand why a civil war couldn't have been staved off or prevented or, mm. you know, um, halted in some way. Uh, recently, President Trump, you know, said that if Andrew Jackson had lived, you know, well, he would have, he wouldn't have, he, he wouldn't have allowed that civil war. I mean, which is just, well, what do you say about that? All right. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, nobody, it turned out, was able to stave it off. Oh. Because the contradiction was so, so deep. Um, And, you know, uh, the way we process the memory and the legacies of that war is also why we're still having to struggle with it now. Now. Uh, Very good point, David. And we've got a couple of minutes left here, and we could go on with this conversation, and especially talking about the Civil War. But I want to give you a minute here um, to just talk about reconstruction Mm -hmm. um we're in the sesquicentennial of reconstruction Mm -hmm. and i know that you were asked the question we had all of these uh commemorative moments um with regard to the sesquicentennial of the american civil war but very little has been said about reconstruction Mm -hmm. and you were asked a question um, by someone uh, recently that said, what would a sesquicentennial of American Reconstruction look like? Well, hopefully it becomes numerous public forums, uh, many new courses, one would hope. God would hope also great documentary films. Um, I'd like to see the U.S. Congress. I don't expect it, but I'd like to see the U.S. Congress get engaged and create a legitimate commission uh, with a bunch of serious historians and writers and artists and other kinds of people to really lay out some big public televised events that force us to debate. Let's say, what are the three greatest questions or five greatest questions of the Reconstruction years? Uh, Why was Reconstruction so bloody? so violent, so difficult. How and why was the U.S. Constitution reimagined? How and why was there such a virulent, successful counter-revolution in the white South, in the white Democratic Party of the South, that defeated it? Was Reconstruction a failure, or was it, in effect, defeated? These, they're, they're tremendous questions, and the reason they're so important is because we're still fighting over those very questions right today whether it's federalism or whether it's race go to the courts we're fighting two-thirds of all litigation in courts is 14th amendment litigation so um we've got a great deal of public education to do and a chance now to do it over the next several years if we can harness 
the interest. And we need to get people as interested in Reconstruction as they are interested in the Civil War. That's not an easy task. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with with us. It's been a rich conversation. Marcus and I will be back in a second. Again, this has been the Waters and Harvey Show, and we have had a wonderful conversation with historian David Blight. Marcus, a lot of rich points. Yeah, and, and one point that really sticks out to me is the point that Dr. Blight made about the, the, the fundamental role that uh, story, that myth as story, uh, plays in the American imagination and the importance of be, becoming aware of that story and distinguishing the, the, the mythic story from the reality of America's history. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Once again, you close it well, Marcus, and I'm going to start calls, calling you here the closer because you become masterful <laughs> at this. So again, Marcus and I want to remind you all that the Waters and Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app, and on iTunes and Google Play. And we hope you'll follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter and talk to us on the streets. Thank again. Thank you again for joining us. We'll see you again next time.